He is the Director of Market Development for You Earned It, and he is also an advisor to 12 different startups. Today, he's going to speak about how he and his team are getting 40 qualified meetings per rep per quarter with their outbound system, which includes list building for outbound SDR and getting your SDR team more efficient. And join us next week when we speak to Tibor Shanto. Tibor is a consultant to many sales leaders, and he's going to be sharing with us what he has found to be the biggest mistake when hiring a salesperson and how to invest your time as a sales leader. Let's join today with uh, Seth, who's going to share all the secrets of, of his success for his outbound team. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Hi, Seth. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm happy to be here, Adam. Thank you. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about who Seth List is and uh, and what your why why people should listen to you? Yeah, it's a big question. Um, so, as it relates to sales and sales development, um, in high school, I uh, I had a friend working at MCI WorldCom, doing a couple hundred dials a day outbound. And uh, it seemed like a good way to make a few bucks and set myself up for college spending money. So that was my my very first foray into cold calling. Um, and years later, uh, I'd moved to San Francisco. I actually fell into a, a candidate sourcer role at a recruiting firm. Uh, and it turns out that a lot of the skills and strategy that you utilize in candidate sourcing are very applicable to sales development or market development. So uh, I took that experience from the agency in San Francisco. And when I got back to Austin in 2008, uh, I landed a gig with a SaaS company here in town called Bizarre Voice, which uh, was a big deal for a while. I joined their market development team as the fifth hire here in Austin. And by the time I left a year later, uh, the market development function um, was up to about 40 people globally. And so uh, I really cut my teeth in this business to business, you know, SaaS sales development or market development role at Bizarre Voice back in, in 2008. Uh, I had an opportunity to be a part of the organization as it, as it grew very rapidly. And so with my experience in recruiting, um, having established myself in the role fairly quickly, uh, just in that first quarter with the company, I, I was asked to be pretty heavily involved in recruiting and onboarding. Um, so I was the guy that uh, had an opportunity to meet candidates in the process. And then assuming we hired them, they'd often camp out at my desk uh, for about a week to better understand you know, the mechanics of the role, the market we were calling into, the buyer persona, et cetera. Uh, I propped up a kind of in-house training program of a for us, by us, uh, market development you know, brown bag lunch type of thing. And from there, I, I took that experience and started to both play the startup circuit in Austin. Uh, I've held quite a few jobs at early stage companies where I was either the first one in or joined as a kind of player coach to build out the function. And I also started consulting um, with other other startups on the side, assuming no, no conflict of interest with my full-time employer uh, to help 
um, very early companies, typically working directly with a founder, uh, organizations of maybe a couple dozen employees um, to define. How, ma- how many companies have you been advising so far? Uh, you know, rough count over the years, probably a dozen. Uh, today, I'm, I'm actively advising uh, just one. Um, but the product they've developed is actually a potential solution for me as a, a market development or sales development leader. Um, there's some uh, implications for the marketing side of the house as well as far as demand gen goes. But it's, um, it's really fun and exciting to be interacting with their founder and their CTO and helping to shape the product uh, as well as how they build out you know, this function that I really love and specialize in uh, within their own organization. So let's start with this one question then is uh, if you've been helping, especially earlier stage companies, uh, what's the biggest problem that you are seeing them face with sales? You know, what I find most often is that I'm working with um, founders that are not salespeople. Uh, So they're often marketers or uh, product experts that have an idea and they they bring it to life, but they don't know a lot about how to sell at scale. Um, They have passion and enthusiasm. It's their baby. And so they're able to get some early conversations, potentially even some early paying customers on board. Uh, But when they feel like they actually have a product they can take to market and sell repeatedly, they don't really understand how, how to do that, who to hire, how to incentivize or motivate them, uh, what KPIs to keep eyes on. Um, kind of a rat trap that I, I find many founders falling into is that they go pick up a copy of uh, Predictable Revenue, which is a fantastic book. <laughs> <laughs> but if you don't have uh, a product that you've really nailed, right? if the product is still developing and, and you're iterating on it, uh, if you don't have a sales process that you've articulated that you understand as a leader, it's really hard to hand that process to someone else and to do it repeatedly at scale. And so there's this big gap between where they are as a business and where Salesforce was as an organization when the predictable revenue kind of philosophy and, and strategy um, was useful and appropriate. And And what I do is often help them to fill that gap. So if they only have... Uh, budget for a single hire, I really help them to be specific about scoping that role and finding the right individual. Uh, my day-to-day job right now has me playing in the HR space, and so I'm keenly aware of the costs associated with a bad hire or turnover, especially in a, in a very small organization right, where you have limited dollars. Uh, and so working with those founders to scope the role, to bring my network to bear, to help them find the right candidate that is going to get them through the next 12 to 18 months and actually bring some money back into the business. Um, and then again, defining compensation plans, guiding them down the path of effectively managing salespeople if they've never done that before, knowing that it may be a while before they can uh, justify you know, a director or VP level hire to start building out a team themselves. And again, just reorienting their mindset around, you know, predictable revenue is is a phenomenal book and there's a lot of gold in there. Um, but if you're a company of five people with no sellers on staff, you know, you've still got a lot of work to do before the predictable revenue practices are appropriate for you. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's easy to read a book, but if, <laughs> if you're not at the same stage and don't have the same processes already in place, it's uh, it's hard to implement them. <laughs> 
Yeah, to kind of put it another way, those founders are often trying to find the playbook, right? The, I'm doing air quotes here, but they they have an expectation that there is a playbook, and if somebody will simply give it to them, then they can go execute against it. Uh, but there are far too many factors and variables involved in each individual business to just take a playbook, as wonderful as predictable revenue is, right, and try to implement it for your for your own business. Absolutely. I, I find that a lot uh, when these early stage co-founders come or founders come and speak with me, ask me, well, how do I just start selling? Like, well, it's not that simple. It's just, you don't just pick up the phone and go. You've, there's got a lot of work to do beforehand. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, hiring that first person. If you only have a budget for one person, what do you look for in, in the person to make the biggest difference? Yeah. I mean, Again, it it really depends on the organization that I'm serving, whether full-time or in a consulting capacity. Uh, I've got to get a read on the CEO um, who is likely doing the, sailing, the, the selling today. Um, what kind of personality are they? Are they a gunslinging cowboy and they're really looking for someone who can just jump on board and is going to ride shotgun with them and wheel and deal and just get stuff done? Um, or are they kind of thoughtful, pragmatic, tend to take a slower, more methodical approach to customer engagements and that's what they're looking for in their hire? Because um, the reality is there's a transitional period where whoever the, you know, the current seller um, is interacting with, they're going to have to hand some of those conversations off to the person that they've hired. And so it's really, for me, about assessing fit. You know, how are they going to fit with the leader in the company? Um, does the candidate have relevant experience as it relates to the product or the industry or the buyer persona? How important is that? Uh, I've worked with some companies, and granted, this is not my strong suit, but you know, worked with some founders who are in the B2C space. It's a highly transactional environment. And so uh, if you're looking to bring on your first seller in a B2C environment, uh, they may not need any relevant industry experience. They just need to have good people skills. Uh, you know, from a fit perspective, how interested is the business in collecting and utilizing data and the insights you can derive from that data? Again, are we looking for a gunslinger that's just going to go get things done and forget the data, just, just get some deals signed? Or is this a long play over the next three to five years to build a useful data set to help what is today a team of one inform what quotas and compensation should look like for a team of 10 or 50 or 100 down the road? Um, because that's another one of those rat traps is like, let's just go get things done. I worked for a guy who was like, I don't care what the pricing is or how you got there. Just get them to sign on the dotted line. We went, we got a couple dozen clients and had no idea <laughs> how we made that happen. So when it comes to implementing practices that allow for repeatability, we had nothing to go on. Wait, what do you find is better? The uh, methodical type person or the gunslinger? Um, I think there's a happy balance. Uh, I personally am a Salesforce junkie, um, specifically at the job I'm at today. In the last 18 months, I've really embraced this idea of uh, revenue efficiency and digging much more into the operations of my, my team's function, trying to find ways to save uh, seconds and minutes in individual tasks throughout the day, which add up to, you know, half hour, hour long increments that they can take back and use to be client facing uh, and the data that I'm capturing 
at the various stages in their process has really, really helped to inform um, where quotas should be set and what a reasonable expectation is of my team as far as pipeline contribution and ultimately uh, a closed one business. Um, but it takes a specific mindset. Again, if, if you're in a company with 12 months of runway and a relatively low price point, the priority may be just, just get some shit done, get some contracts signed, <laughs> uh, and take those moments to be thoughtful and pragmatic when you can, when it makes sense. Because uh, the flip side is if you take too much time deliberating, too much time talking through the process and customizing Salesforce and building out this process, uh, but you're not actually running any prospects through it, uh, then the process itself is not especially useful, right? The data capture is not useful if you're not feeding any data into the engine. And also, if there's, if there's no money, what good is it? Yep. All right. So it's funny that you said uh, that you, you work at like efficiency type stuff because one of the first things I do when I actually hire somebody is before even getting into the sales structure is I, I get them to work on efficiency. And like with Gmail, uh, this is one of my pet peeves is, you know, why waste time if you don't need to get Gmail set up in a particular way so that you're quick and that you could handle, uh, you know, hundreds of leads at a time. And then we could start talking about the process. I'm in, I'm in vehement agreement on that front. Uh, Gmail is kind of the, the tip of the iceberg for me. I'm a, I'm pretty proficient on my machine. I operate without an extra monitor and can jump around and manage the things I want. A lot of it is just building habits and teaching myself shortcuts that take take some of those clicks and steps out of my process. And as, as best I can, I try to relay that along to my team to help them make them more efficient. And even and some of this gets into philosophy as a people manager and, and culture. Um, not every uh, time-saving strategy that I've implemented is meant to free up time for cold calling. I want my time to f my, my team to feel like they can uh, take that mental break, take a half day if they've hit their metrics for the day or um, you know take a long weekend if they feel like they need it or deserve it. But again, it's all in pursuit of giving them time back regardless of what they do with that time. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I, I tell my team, if you're going to waste time, waste it on something that's fun. <laughs> Don't waste yeah. it on work. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's talk about your company uh, that you're at now. You're focused mainly on outbound. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So what does your strategy contain? What is your strategy? Yeah. Um, so we are selling uh, HR tech. We, we sell uh, through HR, sometimes to HR, but almost uh, always um, with or through an HR leader. And, uh, you know, our, our company ICP is essentially defined for us. We play in the kind of squarely in the mid-market, in my opinion. We're reaching out to employers of uh, 100 to 3,000 employees across the contiguous U.S. And so what I know about HR buyers uh, as compared to sales leaders, marketers, uh, IT, um, HR's buying cycle really hinges on a specific date in the year, and, and that relates to their um, benefits renewal and open enrollment, right? From an HR budget perspective, depending on the organization, anywhere from 70 to 90% of that HR budget is going to be spent on benefits for the staff. And so the balance is what they get to spend on solutions like what we sell. 
there are a couple of databases out there that would give us at least an indicator as to when that benefit season is for an employer. But um, without knowing that concretely, the next best uh, approach is to talk to as many HR people as we can. And so from an outbound perspective, uh, I have five cold callers. Uh, we call them uh, market developers today. I think we're actually moving toward a rebrand to sales development, but same, same. Uh, I've got five of those cold callers. And I've done something a little bit different at this organization. I wish I could you know, take full ownership and credit, but I, it's kind of a happy accident. Uh, but rather than the traditional scope of the role where those uh, market developers are doing their own sourcing, producing, you know, account and contact lists to call into in a defined geographic territory, rather than doing that, that, that themselves or outsourcing to the marketing department, I actually have a sub-function within my team. I have two full-time strategic list builders that report to me uh, that support the cold callers. And so the strategy there is to take those inefficient hours that individual sales developers take to build their own lists and give it to someone who specializes in that, that work. Uh, it's essentially a, a research and, and data management role. And so those two sourcers build lists uh, for the cold callers. And rather than sourcing geographically, right, instead of um, my lead market developer, Ted, working a specific geography, all five of them provide coverage across the entirety of the US. So we've adopted a very agile model where sourcing builds lists on a daily basis based on the need of the sales organization. So the old territory model says if I've got a great market developer in the in the west and a competent capable salesperson in the west as well, I should expect greater results out of the west than than the east. Um, but if the rep in the east does not have equal opportunity in their pipeline, Right, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So what we've done is adopted a model where we look, um, we're basically running sprints, agile sprints. Every two weeks, I sit down with the sourcing team and we look at uh, account executive by account executive, the number of opportunities under management and work to create parity across the sales team. So we sit down and say, of our 10 salespeople, Decker has 60 opportunities under management and the new guy, Chris, only has four. So we're going to invest the most sourcing resources in Chris's territory and work to get him to parity with Decker and on down the line. And so whatever accounts they produce territory by territory are then divvied up equally across the cold callers. So in theory, and we're actually seeing this uh, come to fruition and the results, in theory, all market developers have equal opportunity to get to quota because they're all working roughly the same number of accounts and contacts on any given day. And the sales team is also getting closer to parity and comparable results across the team because they all have uh, pipelines that are relatively equal, at least as far as opportunity count. Now, I cannot control the size of the deal. And so some of those uh, opportunities we hand over are 10K deals and some are 100K deals. Uh, but when we're looking at gross count of opportunities under management, um, we've taken that delta from what was originally uh, as high as 52 opportunities when we started this program um, down to a delta of 12. Wow. So the... The AE with the most number of opportunities relative to the AE, fully ramped AE with the fewest number of opportunities, that that gap is down to 12. Uh, and we, I think we've kind of honed in on what the reasonable band is as far as how many opportunities an individual account executive can manage without being bored to tears and not being so overburdened that they can't give any individual deal enough attention. 
Well, it's really it's a really interesting uh, layout, and this is actually the second time that I've heard of somebody having a group of people to help the market developers or or SDRs uh, in min- in building the lists. So it's a it's a cool approach, and I I really like it. Yeah, I I managed to snag um, two that worked for another a satellite office for a Bay Area company that had employed this model. Now the way that the job worked was a little bit different in that environment. Uh, I think this is the first time either of these two women have done exclusively outbound list development and support. And the other role, they were helping to append data to inbound leads and to provide a little bit more color when recycling old accounts that have been worked in the past onto somebody new. Uh, but yeah, it, like I said, it was a bit of a happy accident. We hired an account executive who had worked with one of these women in the past, and my boss insisted I meet with her. And it took us a couple months to figure out the right rhythm and uh, kind of day-to-day operating procedure. You know, when I hired her initially, it was like, hey, let's build big lists and assign them on a monthly basis. And we realized very quickly that was not going to work. So we tested, uh, you know, an automated Slack poll to give market developers some uh, discretion in how many accounts or contacts they were working. And so it would poll them every day and say, do you need a lot of accounts, a few accounts, or no accounts at all today? And then when we abandoned geographic territories for my team, we moved to this fair and equal distribution model, which says, regardless of how many accounts the sourcing team identifies in a day, what territories they align to, they're going to take whatever that count is, and they're going to divide it up across the market development team equally. Um, And we started doing that about five months ago, six months ago. And the results are fantastic. The sales team is incredibly happy. We're utilizing outreach as part of our tech stack. And so that has smoothed out some of the typical bumps that may come with a team of five supporting a team of what's been somewhere between nine and 12 account executives without discrete or dedicated territory relationships. Uh, and outreach has created, it's kind of the magic sauce here for us is discrete sourcing team plus some sort of sales automation. And and I'm really pleased with my experience with outreach thus far. We just started using them this calendar year. But those two things combined allowed me to more than double the daily outbound activity across my team. It's really really impressive. And you said the AEs are happy with it, but I'm just trying to think uh, of the other side. Wouldn't, Wouldn't sometimes they could be mad or upset with it because, hey, it's not fair. I'm better at keeping these opportunities. So why should I be penalized and, and not have resources aimed at me? Well, um, because we've been able to create a system that allows for much higher activity volume on a day-to-day basis. And I realize that these numbers are somewhat arbitrary without the context, but my team's deliverable, their primary deliverable is... Uh, We use the acronym SQL, a sales qualified lead. The criteria for that are a um, meeting set and completed with a prospect that meets our ICP. It's fairly straightforward. Um, But I've got a team of five that are producing a minimum of uh, 15 meetings set and complete per month per rep. So over the course of a quarter, we're generating over 200 meetings for the sales team. Um, And we carry about half of the lead generation number across the company. So the marketing team is also producing between 160 to 200 uh, qualified meetings for the sales team. So in total, we're talking about what could be four to 500 meetings across a sales team of 10. 
uh, a long way of saying uh, the sales reps are too busy to be unhappy about anything. <laughs> yeah, if you're keeping them busy and keeping their pipeline full, then they, they shouldn't care. Yeah, I mean, it's figure it's, uh, I mean, rough math. We're talking about producing 40 net new sales conversations per AE per quarter. So they're taking one, you know, more, more frequently than every other business day. Not quite every business day across the quarter, but just about. Um, and when you account for that, plus what's in their pipeline, and about three quarters of the meetings we produce are deemed pipeline worthy and actually move forward. And so, yeah, they um, they don't have a lot to be upset about. And because the other interesting thing is when you know when you allow an SDR to do their own sourcing, they're they're going to take the fastest path to money for themselves, regardless of what that means for the account executive. So an example of that is calling in at a low level because they feel confident they can get the meeting with the you know, HR manager versus chasing the CHRO. Well, they can retire their quota for the meeting set and completed, but the AE is staring at an uphill battle to get from the HR manager two, three, four levels up the chain to a decision maker or, or you know, power base. Uh, it also manifests in the type of organization, right? It may be that I, as a SDR, feel confident selling into an industry that my E doesn't have a strong business case for, and so I retire my quota, but they struggle to get those deals done. We, by outsourcing all of the list development to the sourcing team, um, it's alleviated a lot of that typical friction between account executives and SDRs. So they know that you know if an AE takes a call and it's a subpar prospect in their opinion, they know that it's not the fault of the market developer, that they're simply working the list provided by sourcing. Um, and that sourcing function, while I've included a very small variable component to the comp plan because I want them to be aligned to outcomes, by and large, these are salaried roles. And so the sourcing team, for them, it's all simply data. And if there's a need to course correct, uh, just the other day, I learned that we have not been very successful selling to YMCAs historically. So rather than having to communicate that change to five different market developers and then keep eyes on their account lists, I communicate the change to two people who can make that change and kind of enact it immediately. They can also go back and pull any current YMCAs in flight to ensure that we're not producing meetings for the sales team that they don't think are valuable or viable. By changing who, who they're going to be prospecting. Correct. In the organization. Wow. Yeah, because they it's only... really nice. And... and They've only got the sourcing team. They've only got the one job. So when you go, go try to communicate a, a, an ICP change, a buyer persona change to a typical SDR team, that's multiple individuals all running their own process and flow as far as when they source, how they source, how much volume they're going after. And it takes consistent reminders because that's only a piece of the job. The other three quarters of the job is the cold calling, the managing your inbox, setting meetings, rescheduling meetings, right? When I only have to communicate that change to two people whose uh, entire you know, job revolves around building lists and, and matching potential accounts to current ICP, I can literally make a change to ICP and sourcing strategy overnight. And, and there's enough work for two full-time list builders? There is, yeah. Because again, by implementing outreach, my outbound team now has more bandwidth. And because, and this is probably a conversation for another time, inbound and outbound are wholly separate in my organization today. So I own the outbound team and roll up under uh, the sales organization. Inbound is owned by marketing. Um, typically, when you've got a blended team, you know, an individual SDR working both inbound and outbound, 
they've got things to toggle back and forth between. So if I've gotten through all of my scheduled outbound cold calls for the day and I have time to kill, I can either source and start to build my list for tomorrow, next week, next month, um, and or I can go use some interesting inbound strategies to identify prospects in the marketing automation platform or in Salesforce that have high email engagement, who have downloaded a lot of content, who asked good questions at the last webinar, and build a call list to, to fill that time. For my outbounders, 100% of their job is outbounding. And so I needed to hire a second sourcer uh, early this year to keep them fed. Interesting. So that it's a good ratio now that you found like uh, two to five. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the current sourcing team has got a little additional bandwidth to support more, but are specifically um, where I'm at in my business today. Uh, my employer, you earned it, just acquired another company out of Chicago that has uh, an SDR team of um, four cold callers plus a manager, um, but they're using kind of the traditional org structure. So they're blended, working both inbound and outbound. They do not have a discrete sourcing team. And they've got a, in my opinion, a subpar sales automation platform in, in place. And so in the short term, uh, I've actually got a conversation set up this afternoon to talk with um, this new company's SDR leader and VP of marketing about how we may augment their sourcing to try and create some additional velocity um, and output for their SDR team out there because they're they're working both inbound and outbound and producing just over half the number of meetings that that my outbounders are on a monthly basis. So there's a lot of room f to to apply this strategy to improve their results. It's nice to have your your own internal. Uh advisor on this i'm sure the i'm sure the companies are happy yeah um <laughs> it's been uh it's been a really fun and interesting experience thus far we we announced the acquisition uh i think it was four or five weeks ago and for all the startups i've been a part of um you know i, I don't gamble because <laughs> my bets haven't always been good i've learned a lot along the way but uh, this is the first organization i've been a part of um i think maybe ever that has gone through an acquisition where I was deeply embedded in the company, had an opportunity to be involved from a management and operations perspective to you know, bring two disparate and unique organizations together from a uh, strategy, you know, technology, and then product perspective. So um, it's still very much in process, <laughs> uh, but it's been a lot of fun so far to work with a new team and to take what we've learned here on my team over the last 18 months and to try and uh, expedite or truncate uh, the ramp and the learnings for this team out of Chicago. Wow, interesting. All right. So you also said that you've got uh, the team on sales sprints. Can you explain that and what that entails? Yeah. So my reference to sprints was uh, specifically with regard to my sourcing team. So we've got... Um, well, what in truth is two separate dashboards today, I'm working to unify those into a single dashboard, but I sit down with the strategic sourcing team every week, but our sprint, sprint planning is bi-weekly. And so we, we sit down and we look at um, how many opportunities each account executive has under management today. We've also added what's essentially a forecasting function. So um, rep by rep, what do they have in their pipeline today? And then how many meetings do they have scheduled on their calendar through the balance of the quarter? And we have uh, a fairly reliable known conversion rate from meeting set to pipeline entry. And it's between 75 and 80%. So we can see between what's in the pipeline and what is coming uh, potentially into the pipeline. Rough count of opportunities under management 
uh, account executive by account executive. And then we, uh, we decide as a group how they should prioritize their sourcing energy over the next two weeks. Um, sourcing is a little bit challenging in that some days are really fruitful. They can spend uh, six or seven hours sourcing and produce a couple hundred accounts whether net new or something recycled from Salesforce that was worked in the past and has not been touched in a while and the data need, needs to be refreshed. And there are other days where they may spend that same eight hours doing research and only produce 10 or 12 new accounts that can be worked. So we think about the planning process with regard to time investment rather than um, account yield because they can't control that. And that's also why we do it as frequently as we do is because some, some sprints are less fruitful for the rep that needs it most. And so they stay at the top of the list um, for the subsequent two-week sprint. And the, the other half of that reporting equation is looking back at the preceding two weeks to say, okay, we agreed that this was the stack rank order as far as level of uh, investment, account executive by account executive. And then I want to look at the actual yield. So again, in the example where Decker's got 65 opportunities under management and Chris has 10 and we agree, well, you know, Chris should come first in, in line. Two weeks pass, I want to be able to look back and say, okay, we agreed that Chris was the priority, but what was the account yield for his territory relative to Decker's? Does he deserve to stay at the top of the chart because, uh, top of the priority list because, um, the time was invested, but the output was low, or were you able to produce uh, you know, a total of 150 net new accounts in Chris's territory, and we can shuffle him back somewhere into the middle and prioritize you know, the latest new hire or the next AE who has uh, only a handful of opportunities under management? Uh, it's a really uh, cool approach and a cool way of, uh, of doing it, and efficient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But, uh, besides outreach, are you using other tools to help get this job done? Yeah. So across the uh, market development and sourcing team, we've got more um, Salesforce shops. So we're using Salesforce, uh, LinkedIn Sales Navigator. The sourcing team uses it for their research, and my team on the outbound side uses it predominantly for uh, prospect communications, sending in mails. We're using outreach, and then on the research side of the house. Uh, the sourcers have access to Discover Org as well as Zoom Info. And that's actually been another interesting byproduct of this approach is that my data costs are much lower than they would be if I had to arm every member of my team with database access. So I can't really get out from under my uh, Sales Navigator <laughs> contract. Um, and I do think that it's useful for those uh, SDRs. But for Discover Org and, and Zoom Info, um, I only have to provision two user licenses versus five or what, you know, if I absorb the team out of Chicago, what could eventually be 10 or 12 SDRs, I've got that relegated to just two users. And then the sales team's got some tools that they use that, um, that we really don't mess with on the, on the SDR side of the house. Which are? Um, to date, they've been using, well, there's actually been a fair number of changes to their, their screen share technology. I think when I started, they were using ClearSlide, then we migrated to GoToMeeting, and I think with the acquisition, the entire shared, you know, combined organization is planning to move to Zoom. Let's talk about, like, the, your outbound uh, callers, uh, your SDR guys. When you're hiring, uh, how do you know somebody's going to be good for the outbound process? Um, 
some of it is uh, gut, <laughs> which I think is hard to get away from, right? It's not reliable necessarily, but it's hard as, a, as someone who's done the job and now managed teams for a few years to not listen to that voice in my head. Um, but one of the big things for me that I include as part of my standard interview process is a skills assessment. So I've got an assessment that I've defined uh, that puts them as close to the job as humanly possible without actually hiring them. So I give them an assignment. Uh, and for me, I'm, I'm less inclined. Part of it is the compensation that I have to work with here at, at my current gig and at, at startups in general, right? It tends to be lower than some of the other players in the Austin market, like Google and Facebook and Apple. And, you know, we've got some really big names that, that pay top dollar. Uh, so I tend to be looking for a more entry level profile, but I'm, I'm looking for some sort of relevant experience and I use relevant somewhat loosely, but ideally uh, client facing selling if possible, B2B experience. Um, that's ideal. But in lieu of that, I'm looking for uh, humility and coachability. And so that skills assessment, uh, the gentleman that I just hired that I, I mentioned earlier, he's, he's pretty uh, plug and play, right? The guy brings over two years of experience in the role working for B2B SaaS companies doing this job. Um, and so he took that assessment and I really didn't have any criticism or feedback. He, he passed it the first time around. For the entry-level candidate, um, I deliver it to them with the expectation, and I, and I communicate this clearly, right? But that in lieu of a stellar performance the first time around, I'm, I'm interviewing and I'm assessing for coachability. And so be prepared that I may you know, take the, red, the proverbial red pen to your assignment, provide you with some feedback, and then give you an opportunity to do it the second time. And at that point, uh, again, in lieu of... Uh, role-specific experience, I'm assessing for does, are they receptive to coaching, one, and two, does my style, the way that I convey that feedback, um, does it resonate with the candidate? Are we a fit? Are we compatible from a, a management and a coaching perspective? Yeah, but doesn't, uh, doesn't telling them, them ahead of time that, hey, I'm, I'm going to give you feedback and I want to see how you take that feedback? Doesn't that kind of set them up to automatically succeed? Um, it depends on the candidate, right? There are some where I, I feel like they should do perform better the first time around, and so I may not plant the seed that there there's an option to take it again. Uh, and the reality is that the assessment itself, um, there's no there's no right or wrong, right? I, I give them the equivalent of what the top to bottom kind of the soup to nuts SDR job is. I'm going to give you an account name and I want you to go identify the prospects because even though they're not doing the sourcing themselves, if they come to work for me, they need to understand the mechanics of that piece of the role. I think it serves them well, big picture. So find the prospects for me and then pick one of them and let's do a mock outreach campaign. I need you to send me three emails and leave me three voicemails as though I'm the prospect. Uh, and so there's no real right or wrong way to do that. Now, if they misrepresent the company or a value proposition, if they just flat out lie about capabilities, that's problematic. Um, but the way that they frame the value proposition, the way that they communicate a call to action, right? There's no, really no right or wrong in that. But I'm always going to press my team to be better and to think outside the box and to try new things. And so I do the same thing with candidates in the interview process. All right. So do you tell them what the value proposition is or do you let them or expect them to figure that out before the interview? The latter. 
Yeah, because my typical process, I will have had at least one conversation with the prospect prior to giving them this assignment, uh, depending on the you know the candidate and how aggressively I, I need to hire. Um, that may include a conversation or two, some face-to-face time. Um, but my interviews, even just a 30-minute phone screen, always allow for at least you know six to eight minutes at the end for the candidate to ask me questions. So if they have any confusion about who we are as a business, what we sell, who we're selling to, that's their opportunity to ask. Um, and the caveat to the assessment as, a, as compared to the actual day-to-day job is that I give them um, ample time to complete the assignment. And in my mind, that's about four hours. And so I will communicate the details of the assignment to them um, by phone or in person. We will agree on a on a four-hour window for them to complete it. Uh, I'll use, you know, outreach or whatever tools at my disposal to set up the email and delay the send. And they've got 15 minutes in the front end of that window to ask any clarifying questions. Um, some candidates, m- most candidates don't ask any questions at all. They, they get those out of the way when we're talking live before the assignment is issued. Some have asked questions that I am <laughs> simply unwilling to give answers to, like, who should I be calling in this account? It's like, well, that's your job. That's part of the assignment. Uh, you know, <laughs> how often should these emails go out? And that's kind of like, I'm going to put that ball back in your court. That's at your discretion. And so some some candidates send me three separate emails that kind of feel like wholly disconnected, unrelated emails. Others are, you know, replying to their initial email and then replying on the third one to the second so that it lives in a thread and that they're kind of telling a story and building on it. Some go as far as um, kind of noting for me, you know, you you received all three of these emails in 10 minutes, but in a real world scenario, email one would go out, you know, Monday at 1037, email two would go out Thursday at this time, so on and so forth. Okay. So do you have them actually putting this uh, in outreach itself? I do not know. Or just writing it down. Okay. And so the assessment includes you give the company, they need to find out who the person is to contact, write three emails and, and the separation of time between it and three voicemails. Correct. Okay. Is there any role playing once they do get you on the phone? Uh, no. I very intentionally, I, so this is the, the assessment I use is a variation on um, part of the assessment that was used in my interview process at Bizarre Voice, and, and that Bizarre Voice interview did include a live uh, role play, a cold call. Um, one, those are really nerve-wracking, right? People inevitably are going to be nervous. And two, um, I, I've realized this about myself in my, my 30s, but I, I tend to think chronologically, which maybe is logical for most folks, but um, they will have to get to a place where they're competent running a cold call. But that doesn't happen for probably 30 to 45 days um, into the job, right? Depending on yeah. where we are as a business and how much, how much leeway I have to be patient and thoughtful about the onboarding. Sometimes I just need to get somebody in and get them, get them working. But um, there are things that they're going to need to do in their job that precede that cold call. And if they don't work here and they haven't been trained on our product, if they don't understand the common objections and uh, the other players in the space, it's really hard for someone to do a mock cold call and be even moderately effective in that call if they don't work here. And so I feel like I, I set candidates up for failure, and I am, 
I'm more of a kind of uh, patient, deliberate coaching type as a, as a manager, and that's not to knock any other styles, but I don't have an expectation that they come in and they get it right day one. Um, I want them to dig in with me. I want them to ask questions. I want them to spend time in rooms with their peers and to start to put together the story that they're going to tell themselves because everybody's got a slightly different flavor on how they approach this value proposition, any value proposition. Um, and so I'm not going to hand them a script. I'm not going to tell them how to do their job. And to that end, I don't hire for someone that comes in with that confidence bravado right off the bat that they can like talk to the product and, and, you know, push past that objection or that tipping point to get commitment for the meeting. I'm looking for people who can, especially with our buyer persona here at this company, we're selling to HR. Um, and that's a, uh, tends to be a much more thoughtful, um, compassionate buyer. It requires a lot of patience and curiosity and empathy. Um, we're not like a go for the throat type of sales organization. And so for all of those reasons, specifically as it relates to the interview process here, I'm looking for someone who shows uh, curiosity and that can be expressed through emails and, and voicemails. And um, a cold call, typically the expectation is that the, the seller is doing some pitching and we just, even the reps that I have on the team today that have been here in the role for you know, two years, um, they're not doing a lot of pitching. A, a big part of what facilitates success for us within my team is asking really interesting, thoughtful questions of prospects about what they're doing today and then conveying that information along to the account executive so that when they get on the phone, the account executive can start to tell a story about, based on what you're doing today, here's where we see the opportunity for improvement. Uh, but it's still a bit of an aspirational sell. Uh, uh, there's a lot of education and evangelization that goes into it. We're not selling like a commodity where buyers know exactly what they're buying or how to buy it or how to integrate it with the other programs or um, initiatives that they've got in place today for their people. Wow. That's, uh, I mean, we covered a lot now and I've got a whole page of questions that I, <laughs> that I still want to cover with you, but uh, we're already on 45 minutes uh, conversation here. So I don't want to uh, keep going and, and cause you to be late to your next meeting. So thank you so much, uh, Seth, for joining us. Is there a way for people to uh, reach out to you? Yeah. Uh, LinkedIn is great. Um, I'm pretty active on the platform. I'd say I'm in there uh, every day, all day. So uh, yeah, it's Seth List. Um, at, you earned it out of Austin, Texas. That's the easiest way to find me, connect with me. Uh, and I love talking shop, so I appreciate that I was a little long-winded and apologize that we didn't get to all of your questions, but uh, I love uh, opportunities. we go for round two. Hey, that works for me. <laughs> Great, Seth. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. To contact Adam about consulting services or speaking engagements, visit StartupSalesPodcast.com or email StartupSalesPodcast at gmail.com. Seth, let's finish things off with the final five. Yeah. What is your favorite sales or leadership book? Oh, what? Now I'm going to have to pull it up. Uh, the Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Never heard of that one. Yeah, it's a, it's a leadership book. Um, I'm really big on people, what makes them tick and how to work with them. And uh, The Five Dysfunctions is a really easy read that helped me to better understand how to take 
individuals with very different temperaments and goals and approaches to life and bring them together and kind of unify them around a goal and keep everybody motivated and rowing in the same direction. Very interesting and very, uh, very relevant. All right. Do you have someone that you follow or read for sales and leadership ideas? Um, the two blogs that I pay attention to on a daily basis are the HBR management tip of the day. And while it's not necessarily sales or leadership, I really love Seth Godin, um, both the nature of his content, uh, the length, and, and which is typically pretty short, the, the brevity uh, of the messaging. It, I read it every day, and you know, more than half the time, I can pull something useful and relevant out of it, uh, both for my work life and my personal life. Are you available 24-7, or do you have strict personal time boundaries? <laughs> I am not available 24-7, no. <laughs> Good. Clear, clear defined uh, time frames. Yeah. What is your favorite tool used for sales? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I, I'm a huge Salesforce junkie. If, if I could only have one tool, uh, it would be Salesforce. Um, outside of that, I, like I mentioned, I've been really impressed with my experience, both with the technology as well as the team at, at Outreach.io. Yeah, I use them myself at, a, at my company. Very happy. All right, last question. What one piece of advice do you have for all the founders, CEOs, and sales leaders out there? Uh, don't be afraid to ask for help. That's a very good piece of advice. <laughs> now, if you, and now if everybody could just follow it. Yeah. Well, and, and ask, ask early and ask often, right? There's a lot of uh, perspective out there. I think the trick is um, capturing a broad swath of answers and then taking the time to chew on it and figure out what's appropriate for you and your business right now and to keep asking those questions and you know gathering insights and doing the exercise of figuring out what makes sense for me right now because uh, business is not, not nothing that we do in this space is static so seth thank you very much for uh joining yeah thanks for having me <laughs>